welcome everybody to the 31st episode of what we call the Right on Track podcast, where we talk about everything Thomas the Tank Engine and friends. I am Tom Parry, and I am one of the three hosts here on this very show, and I am not the only Thomas. There is another Tom joining us today. It's none other than Tom Denham. Hello, good to be here. And, of course, we have somewhere else in the world, in this great big world of ours, Connor Jonas. Hello, Connor. Hello, Parry. How are you going today? I'm not doing too badly, and it is a very special day today, because... Not only are we reviewing two stories from season four of Thomas and Friends, that being Thomas and the Special Letter and Paint Pots and Queens, but we are also going to be talking to none other than Rob Gould Golliers, who was the art director from seasons one through to seven of the show and is integral to the development and production of the show from its very early days. So we have that to to look forward to, as well as our regular musical interlude. But should we get stuck into it, guys? We should, we should. And I say we should start with a very special number for us, which is our 100th review. That is correct. We are going to be talking about the 22nd episode from Series 4, which also happens to be the 100th episode overall and it is thomas and the special letter and in this clip here thomas percy and toby are all waiting at ellsbridge station at the end of the day when they see some familiar faces pottering through boss my buffers look over there mavis boko bill ben donald oliver and douglas paraded past Good evening, you three, whistled Donald. Aren't we all a fine sight? Very splendid indeed, admired Toby. It's sorry we can't stop. The fat controller wants us all together at the station. What is this about? asked Thomas. The fat controller has a plan, answered his driver. Come on. So they followed the other engines to the big station at the end of the line. Yes, and there was a very important... A uh, piece of information that the fat controller also top him had had for all the engines, and that was that a special selected few of them were to travel across to the mainland to meet their fans. Oh, they've got a little fan group, have they? The groupies, yes. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Thomas and the special letter, released twenty third of September, nineteen ninety five tells the story of Thomas and his friends going over to the big city to visit all the young boys and girls after they received a letter from a little five-year-old girl. Mm. And and it's a very wholesome story. It is a very wholesome story and a very wholesome letter, I might Mm. add, as well. So, well, this is usually the point where I do a quick plot summary, so I may as well do the same here. Be my guest. Well, thank you very much. Thomas and the Special Letter is based on a story from The Eight Famous Engines, which is book number 12 in the Railway series, published in 1957. It was the first book to be illustrated by John T. Kenny, and it is also the second book in the series to feature Duck the Great Western Engine, and at that time there were only eight steam engines on the Fat Controller's Railway. 
And as we find out in this particular story, it is Thomas, Edward, Henry, Gordon, James, Percy, Toby and Duck who head on to the big city. In the original story, they head to London, but in the television show, it's just the big city. But (laughs) David Mitten did confirm in the the behind-the-scenes documentary, Thomas the Tank Engine Man, which was being filmed at the same time, Mm -hmm. that they were heading to London, much like in the original story. Okie dokie. So that's been confirmed for us. And in the place of... It's canon. (laughs) It is canon. It definitely is canon. Now, as I was saying, in the place of these eight engines, and as you heard in the clip, we had Mavis, Boko, Bill, Ben, Donald, Oliver and Douglas all come in to fulfill the work of the engines. In the original story, though, it was engines from the other railway who came in to help the engines on the island of Sodor. So they were the ones who were having to do the work for them. And I reckon... Those other engines are probably feeling pretty bummed about the fact that they have to stay on the island of Sodor. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so, um, in the original story, a whole bunch of mainland um, uh, to Sodor in order to do the Sudrian work, uh, most notably of the two replacements, uh, Jinty and Pug, that have become sort of well-known, despite them only having one line or none, depending on which of the two you're talking about. Mm. Except here, they've been replaced with other engines on the island that in the TV show you would have seen before. So you'd be able to recognise, oh, hey, there's Oliver. I want to go see Oliver. And then you find out that everyone but Oliver has been invited. Yeah. (laughs) Poor Oliver. That is so mean. And not to mention the fact that Annie and Clarabelle get to go to the big city too. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I think Henrietta was supposed to, but I don't In the see book him. she was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in the book, not the episode. She, she was the, the fact controller's private. Yes. And, and, like, I mean, let's talk about on how Oliver is seemingly replacing Thomas. Hasn't Oliver got his own line to run, the Little Western? Like, I mean, of course, it could be left up to Duck, but Duck is going to the mainland. Aha, uh-huh. now this is where my head cannon theory comes in. So where all the characters that we know are coming to help in the aid, the engines from the other railway are filling the gaps of Oliver and Bill and Ben. But we don't see it because it's not from... Uh, their perspective of the story. It's from Thomas's perspective. Touche. However, that so, sounds like an organisational mess. Uh, from a narrative point of view, yes. But if you don't see it, it's not a mess at all, is it? No, no, no. It's exactly the same as sweeping it under the carpet, locking the yeah. shed doors and going... So Jinty and Pug oh. could well be there. They, um, they plus could well be. All, all those engines that Percy sees in... Um, Oh, what's that story? Percy takes the plunge. Um, They've all come along too. As Thomas is teaching Oliver uh, how his branch line works and where to shunt the coaches in and around the yards, uh, he's being boastful, he's being cheeky, and he's bragging a bit. And he decides to show off, let's say. That's an excellent way of putting it. I couldn't put it any (laughs) other way, Connor. He's overexcited. He's very overexcited. And what happens is... 
Well, what happens in the original story is that Thomas merely runs into the buffers and bends them quite considerably. But in the television series, what happens is he runs through the buffers, fights, <laughs> runs right down the hill, and then crashes through a wall at the bottom. Which is not too far from reality, actually, because it is based on the case where an LB and SCRE 4062T tank engine, number 32493, had a very similar accident where it ran off the turntable and crashed right through a brick wall. Ouch. Uh, that Yeah. And what really interests me about that is on how it is a very similar class and engine to Thomas. E2s run on the LB and SCR, and Thomas is an E2. This is an LB and SCR E4. Like, I mean, it just seems fitting that a very similar engine had an accident that Thomas then has copied, or maybe they copied one another. But regardless, this accident is partially based on truth. And I have to say, it is one of my favourite accidents out there, if not for any other reason other than the same comedic music that we heard in Trust Thomas. But you took the words right out of my mouth, Connor. That is exactly what I wanted to say, because like you rightfully say, as Thomas finds himself going straight through the buffers and running down the hill, we get that same ditty that we heard all the way back in season three. And yeah, it is one of the most spectacular looking accidents as well. It's interesting that you point that out because when I was young, I first this episode and then went to the Railway Series book. And reading the Railway Series book after watching the episode, I remember feeling really underwhelmed with the original source material of this story. Having looking at TV version, there is a real sense of grandiose scale in terms of the crashes and the action. And the thing is, is that it isn't even a case of, oh yeah, they just sort of expanded it for detail, because it did happen. Granted, in this case, in real life, the hill was much smaller, but it did happen. Mm, Yeah. But, like, I mean, I, I guess it's got to do with location, because in the Railway series original story, it is based at uh, Ellsbridge or Knapford. I believe it's Knapford where Thomas bashes his buffers and he has to go to the works. Whilst in this one, he seems to be around Tidmouth Yard or something and there's a massive hill, which I don't fully understand, but it, it seems a little more reasonable than the source material having a massive hill right by the end of the track. And it's important that we state as well, this is another one of those locations which is seen only once throughout the show's entire run and never again. They created this specific location for this specific scene. And and it's brilliant. Like, I mean, when Thomas is rolling down the hill, you can see bits of, I would say, foliage, but it's, you know, model foliage being brushed aside as he rolls down it's it's fantastic and one of my favorite details about it is right when thomas crashes through the wall 
and the music ends, you can hear a very sad whistle from him. You can, yeah. It's almost like an exact kind of same sound effect you'd hear in a cartoon when someone is feeling dizzy. Exactly, and it's... I, I, I say brilliant way too much, but that little detail is Should brilliant. I get at my thesaurus? <laughs> yeah, you, you know, that may be worthwhile eventually. Yeah, and we'll read course, the thesaurus one day. <laughs> and of course, immediately after the crash of the war, you also hear the sound of birds tweeting as well, which is typical of people who've been knocked unconscious in cartoons. <laughs> yes. Yeah. One of my favourite shots, after the fact controller has spoken on the phone, it goes back to uh, the rescue party, looking up the hill, and you see Oliver and Mavis and one of the China clay twins, and I think one of the Scottish twins as well, all kind of looking down to see where Thomas is at. It's such a unique shot because you never see all those characters collectively together again. You hit the nail on the head once again, Denim. I mean, that shot is something we rarely ever see in either the live-action episodes or even the later computer-generated episodes. It's just, yeah, it's a wonderful shot. And, yeah, it's a scene you rarely ever see on Thomas and Friends. I feel what the note is, is it isn't the wide assortment of engines, but you rarely get a view at any engine from below them. True, true. Mm. Yeah, that's very true. Like, I mean, we had the shot of Toby and Toby's tightrope, and we have the shots of the engines going over various bridges. And in those cases, they're often the best because you've got the distance and depth of perspective due to actually being under them. I think the next time you see a shot like that is not until probably calling all engines when the suspension bridge collapses and Thomas comes the morning after. Um, mm. You get a similar kind of shot. But 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 yes, um, moving back to Thomas's accident, he has been damaged, so very damaged, that he might not be able to go to London and visit all the little boys and girls. So he's been sent to the works... And if he is not repaired in time, he is not going to London. In, in actual fact, they give the workmen until the very next morning to repair yes. Thomas. Now, if you've just bent your buffers, that that's fine. That's something you could do overnight. But if you've crashed through the buffers, gone through a fence, gone down, down a, a hill, and then crashed through a wall, that is not an eight-hour job. That is going to take weeks or months to repair and yet miraculously they do it the very next morning when they're supposed to leave thomas is there with annie and clarabelle and then everybody heads off to london they work day and night (laughs) to be fair all the damage that thomas could have received could have simply been taken on his buffers and maybe under chassis which could be repaired fairly quickly well, that's a good point you make, Connor. But again, when you see what he what happened to him on oh, yeah. screen and how yeah, much on screen he yes. is, you know, he Total. he should be in pieces. <laughs> yes. But 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 like this brings up a weird point to me because I feel like in both the TV series and railway series stories, the excuse of Thomas going to London isn't properly explained because in the railway series he's bent his buffers oh no he can't go to london i'm sorry if you've got a band-aid on your finger you are still going to go to work okay 
Mm. It isn't going to really affect him unless he's shunting something from the front in which he may be in presentation, you know? He's not going to be shunting something from the front. You make a good point yet again, Connor, but you've also got to consider that uh, Thomas and all his friends are going to see a group of children, fans, if you will, who have heard all their stories, heard all about them, and really want them to visit. And it's not going to be a good reflection upon them, the engines, the Fat Controller, or the Fat Controller's Railway, if one of those engines comes through to this huge, giant uh, engine shed with bent buffers. It, it, it won't be a good look, but it will be fitting for probably the most clumsy engine in the stories. Yeah, I feel like um, that would reflect negatively because, like, if you were a young going to see basically your idol or something or someone that you'd look up to and you could only dream and imagine what that thing looks like. And in the case for these uh, kids, that's very much the case. Um, you wouldn't want to see the star attraction or... Um, dismembered and not looking his absolute best. I'll give you that, but on the same topic, a lot of children, in, in like my experience, when I would go to my old Day Out with Thomas events, I wouldn't be able to tell that the tractor pulling the train wasn't Thomas. He had a face, he was blue, he had a number one, it was Thomas. I have a very funny story about that with Thomas. Um, I was not there, but one of my um, train drivers uh, told me the story about how a little boy went up to the steam engine that was in Thomas' guise and looked at it, mm -hmm. took one look and said, that's not Thomas, kicked it, and his eyeball socket <laughs> fell out. <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I saw the damage after. It was like, horrific. <laughs> like, mm. I mean, I I work at Day Out with Thomas as well, at, at, at the same one that you're talking about. And well, I, I assume so. Um, and I am glad that has not They happened. have since uh, <laughs> made the face stronger. And, 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 and I believe solid, because I don't think the eyes... Yeah, move. in... Uh, when it had its um, model series face, um, the eyes were a little different. Yeah, yeah. But in CGI, it's all just one solid plastic mass. But but but, getting off topic and trying to get back onto it, mm -hmm. um, Thomas eventually makes it back to the station, uh, the junction. Ellsbridge. It's Ellsbridge Station, no less. Yes, yes. Bang on eight, which is perfect because they were supposed to leave by then. Oh, actually, a little bit past late, uh, as the coaches sing um, and let us know. That brings up a question from my point of view of if Thomas wasn't going due to his buffers, does that mean that Annie and Clarabelle weren't allowed to go either? Hmm. Well, I imagine... Well, let's start with Denim. What's your theory? My theory would suggest that someone else could have taken them, but then... Annie and Clarabelle come in Thomas' package. Yeah. 
Not the full package. Well, my theory is that another of the engines would have taken them. So they would have had some idea as to whether or not Thomas would be ready by the next morning. And I reckon if somebody had told them, no, it's not happening, then another of the trains would have taken them to London with them. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, they eventually do make it to London. All of them, all engines numbered one to eight, mm-hmm. along with two flatbeds and an Annie and Clarabelle. Yes. And then they are in the big city engine shed uh, with bunting and banners and all the engines are coming up. All the engines? And all the children are coming up to see them. Mm, which is good to see. And when they eventually do make it, there's this brilliant shot... It's a bird's eye view, essentially, of all the engines around this round table in a shed, and it it's looks great. It's a turntable turned into platform. Mm. It's a turntable, yes, turned into a platform of sorts. Very well put, Connor. And they've got that shot there, and then afterwards we get this still shot of the model children meeting the drivers and firemen. And then we end the episode with Thomas talking to Percy, and saying, isn't it wonderful what happiness a letter can bring? And then our old friend, the credits, make a really rude and abrupt interruption and start playing. The ending is too short, and it's not that You, you should have seen, like... No, it's I not. think, you know what would be the perfect way to, like, properly film this, I reckon? I reckon it should have been done mm-hmm. just like um, sequence in Thomas and Percy's Christmas Adventure when you see the interior of the engine shed with the Christmas decorations. If you had just one, at least one shot of every engine in the shed chatting to one another or saying hello to the children, that would have been the cream on the top of the bun. The the cream of the crop, crop, yeah. I was about to say that, but I tried to... The cream on top of the crop. (laughs) Need to think of something else. Uh, But yeah, I, I think if we saw... A little bit more of that shed, and maybe the children entering there. In my mind, I kind of think that this is um, maybe the National Railway Museum in York. Um, that's just my. Yep, it, it, it does bear some kind of resemblance to it for those that and have seen it, either in I person have, or on That's me. Internet. Yes, I've been there. You, it does resemble you've it. You've been there? Okay. No, I've been to the National Railway Museum of York. Okay, and, and does it resemble it? It does. I mean, not very strongly, but there is some resemblance there for sure. You seemed so happy there. <laughs> oh, yeah, because I, I'm one up on you two. Neither of you two have been to the National Rail Museum. No, no, no we haven't, Harry. I haven't left Australia before. No, I, I, I haven't. So... What should we do, Dan? I said we should uh, fly across there when all this uh, stuff has uh, calmed down. Yes. R- right on track. Big, on big world, big adventure. Big podcast, yes. big adventure. <laughs> no, but so yeah, it's a very lovely shot at the end there. And again, it's one of those settings where we see once and we never see again. I share Denim's sentiments. I do wish they had to spend more time focusing on the other engines and shown them conversing. What I would like at the end of the episode would be to have a very similar to the end of season three, but to maybe have a 
a, a, a little detail there, such as maybe the boys ask, like boys and girls asking Thomas, you know, uh, Toby told about the time that he blank, blank, blank. Uh, Edward shared his wisdom. Gordon and, and James looked proudly. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And Henry just um, sat there and smiled. <laughs> And, and, and then you you tie in the engine that you tie in the end there, and then you tie in the end there of as everyone smiled and laughed. Thomas whispered to Percy, "You know, isn't it amazing what happiness a letter can bring? Just have a little more wholesomeness, showing them interacting then, instead of going. There's children, and then instead of the abrupt credits, you have dun." Dun, 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 dun. Which yeah. they don't use I know, anymore. Like, I don't know why it, we it, keep it, that joke it, going. If they do it for any episode, it should have been this one. That is yeah. a good point. That is a very good point. But, um, yeah. It, it, it's not that personal, the ending, but it is a very good episode. Um, there, there are a fair few other things I like about it, such as at the very start, you've got this, like, reverse shot of Ellsbridge. We are mm. on the platform and you can see, you know, Percy, Thomas and Toby all mm. there, which is fantastic. We've got the uh, another form of indignation meeting with Duck as a podium. So the yes. first of many times become... Duck is used as a podium. Yes, yes. Um, another thing I love is the near silence when the letter is being read out by the Fat Controller. Hmm. It, it is so personal there, um, the, the letter being read out with that silence and it just panning over all the engines. Um, I, I, I have got a question, though, on why are Toby and Percy on a truck, on a flatbed? Well, that's a very easy question to answer. It's because that Toby's water tank is too small to go long distances, as is Percy's. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. You know what? I'll take mm-hmm. it. Well, it's in the it's in the original story, Connor. It, it even says in um, uh, just let me find the name here. The Fat Controller's engines that yeah they were put on the flatbeds because their water tanks meant that they couldn't go long distances. Yeah, but I I haven't read the railway series. <gasps> well, maybe you should get onto it then. I haven't got a copy of the railway oh, series. I, well, I, I, buy okay, one. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> uh, listen, okay, I have read it. I was very young. I'm sharing a story here hmm. on how uh, I would go to the library, and I first came across the railway series, and it was a massive like the full collection. And I loved being able to actually read the stories and then see the different illustrations in it. And it made me so happy. And I would make, like, a a job of myself to go to the library once a month and try and read it. And then, uh, sadly, one day I went there to read it. I couldn't find it. I went, oh, maybe, maybe someone's borrowed it, as most books often are at a library. I then went to ask about it, and they went, sorry... Someone ripped all the pages out. Oh. And that made me so sad. I remember crying about it because it was my favourite book to read again and again, purely for the, you know, the, the, the illustrations and the different details in the Railway series stories. And 
I haven't actually been able to read a railway's story since because I haven't been able to really find any apart from maybe one book or two that I've, you know, seen at meetups. As someone who works in a library, can I just say hearing that story makes me incredibly angry. I mean, the fact that someone would go so far as to rip the pages out of a book, it's just Apparently annoying. it was a child. Still one accepted. No, no excuse. Yeah. No you know, excuse. Please. I never tore pages out of books when I was a child. Please, you know, uh, this is a PSA, okay? If, if you have young children, please keep an eye on them. Okay, but um, some more interesting details about this episode. Uh, one to actually make both of you guys happy. Uh, there's like a fact for each of you there, but but I'll say a few others first. So of course, mm. this was uh, filmed at the same time as the Thomas the Tank Engine Man documentary um, that followed the story of Reverend Audrey, and it showed stuff from the TV series, behind the scenes stuff. This was the first mention of the mainland, quote-unquote. This was the first episode where every engine numbered 1 to 11 spoke. Nearly every Northwestern Railway engine in this episode appears, except Daisy, because she shares a chassis with Boko. Mm. Now... Uh, Parry, Denim, I've got a fact for each of you to oh. make you happy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Parry, this one is specifically for you, but, but Denim, I know that you'll enjoy it. In a behind-the-scenes shot from the Thomas the Tank Engine Man documentary, when Britt Allcroft is being interviewed, you can see in the big city shed, sitting right next to Duck, Stepney. Really? Oh, I know exactly the shot you're talking about. Which further brings into my mind that this is the railway exhibition shed. Yes. Because it's got another famous engine there. And, 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 and Denim, you will love this one. This episode, specifically the little girl's letter, is what inspired Britt Allcroft to pursue the creation of Thomas and the Magic Railway. Oh, I like it. I, I know it's your favourite yes. film. It's a tie in my plinth of favourite film and filmography. But rankings for this episode. Rankings for this episode. Uh, I have to say, there is a lot that I enjoy about Thomas and the Special Letter, but it's not one of my favourites. It's not one of those ones I've found... I find myself eager to revisit. So mm. I would head towards a 7 out of 10. Okay. Denim? That's interesting. I think um, it's one of those episodes as a young age I found exciting and exhilarating, mainly for seeing such different engines interact with each other, but also the spectacular crash sequence. Um, and I still really find that pizzazz factor in it today um and i think i have a better understanding special episode um and for that reason i'm probably going to give it a nine okay so i i love this episode it it has you know got some wonderful lighting got a fantastic crash but 
a big part of this episode is that it was the hundredth episode released on the television series. Mm-hmm. And that is one reason why all the engines went to London. That's another reason why a whole bunch of the characters appear and have speaking roles. However, it just seems to miss the mark of making it feel like a hundredth episode or for us a hundredth review because it's got all the pieces there it just seems to be missing maybe a more grandiose music Mm. uh to bring it together as a hundredth episode um if anything i would say that the next episode that we review would be a much better suited hundredth episode but i'm gonna give it a solid eight it's a pretty solid score so we got a seven a nine oh, so and an eight. A 7.5, uh, I 7. believe. 5. No, mine was just a seven. Uh, a, a seven, a nine, and an eight. So it averages out to eight, which is a very respectable score indeed. Indeed. It is. But, but I, I mentioned the music in the next episode, how I felt the next episode would be a much better suited episode. But um, what is that episode, Denim? That episode, indeed, is none other than Pots and Queens, and we have some very interesting things to say. And in the clip we're about to hear, Thomas and Gordon have just arrived back at the engine shed after a very long day to hear some very exciting news. Ladies, gentlemen, and engines, I am honoured to inform you that Her Majesty the Queen herself is coming here to visit us. Now, on with the preparations. The engines wondered who would pull the royal train. I'm too old to pull important trains, said Edward sadly. I'm in disgrace, sighed Gordon gloomily. He'll choose me, of course, boasted James. You, snorted Henry, you can't climb hills. He will ask me to pull the train and I'll have a new coat of paint. That is right. Queen Elizabeth II herself, madam, is coming to the Sudrian Island in order to visit all the people there and all the engines as part of her coronation tour. And one thing I would like to say about this episode that I prefer over nearly anything else about it is the very season one style dialogue. Ah, that's something I'd never noticed before. But now that you mention it, Connor, yeah, it is kind of written like a season one episode. But it is, yeah. I suppose that is in part due to its origins because Paint Pots and Queens is based on a story from Gordon the Big Engine, which is book number eight in the Railway series, published all the way back in 1953. And it takes place after the stories Off the Rails, in which Gordon slips into a ditch, and Down the Mine, in which Thomas the Tank Engine disappears, or doesn't disappear, he rather ends up in a mine shaft. And in the very beginning of the episode, we get a brief flashback. We get two brief flashback sequences, and we get Michael Angelis, the narrator, explaining why it is that Thomas and Gordon have formed this alliance. And then, of course, we lead into the clip we just heard. We learned that Henry would be... Well, he assumed he'd be the one to pull the royal train because Gordon can't do it and Edward can't do it and James can't climb hills. Mm. So he's very boastful about the whole thing. And then, while waiting at Knapford Station to take a train, a painter 
falls down onto his cab and with the painter falls a paint pot which sees Henry's boiler covered in white paint and the fat controller says now that won't do I have to make other arrangements and so it falls to Gordon to pull the royal train after they've been so well behaved of course after yes after they've been well behaved we haven't seen in what ways exactly they have been behaving themselves and in what way they've improved themselves but apparently the fat controller thinks they've done the crime done the time so it's time for them to get back into the swing of things. And that happens by Gordon pulling the royal train, Edward acting as a pilot of sorts for the train, clearing the tracks, and Thomas by organising all the coaches in the yard. And yeah. that leads to the arrival of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Now, a lot of listeners are probably wondering why it is that the Queen is coming to visit the island of Sodor. Well, that's because Gordon the Big Engine, as we mentioned, it was originally published in 1953, and history buffs know that is the same year that Elizabeth was coronated, that is, officially crowned the monarch of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, and this story, it sort of acts as a coronation gift to Her Majesty, and in fact... A copy of the book was given to her son, Prince Charles, who at the time was only a little tacker. A, a wee little tacker. Mm. Uh, a wee little tacker, yes. Smaller than me. Uh, yes, <laughs> smaller than most people are, I might add. Um, but not only uh, is Gordon taking the Queen, the Queen arriving on Sodor, due to that, um, it is also inspired by a true event when Queen Elizabeth II arrived at Landrindod Wells in 1952 after taking the throne. And I would like to point out how proud I am of pronouncing Landrindod Wells partially correctly. Well done. <laughs> but partially correctly. Well, you get a partial congratulations. Well done. I get, I, 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 I get a bronze sticker. Yes, you do. Bronze and a half. <laughs> And you mentioned before, Parry, on how James can't climb hills. And that, of course, is taken from a comment that Henry says to James after James says that he will pull the royal visitor. But that is where I feel that the season one dialogue sits very well. Because as the engines are discussing about who gets to pull the royal train, you get Edward saying that, you know, I'm too old which very much seems to fall back to Edward and Gordon, the very first story that was ever written in the Railway series. Then you've got Gordon saying, I'm in disgrace, and and the very term disgrace sits well with Gordon, but it also shows a bit of his character arc. And then you have James saying that, no, he'll get to pull the train, classic James. And then Henry going, no, I'll get to pull it. You can't climb hills, which is a reference to Trouble with Mud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, season three story. Yeah. Yes, there are just so many references, and so much. I, I would say quick fire dialogue that I feel puts this entire, especially the beautiful evening shot at the start, puts this entire episode into a season one feel. It yeah. does do that, and it's also worth mentioning that The Trouble with Mud is based on the short story Leaves, which also appears in the book Gordon Big Engine. So, yeah, a lot of connections going on here, but it's sort of not 
a season one story too, because we see in the television story there are appearances from Duck and there's another appearance of Donald, I think we see in there as well, yep. as he's pulling coaches into Natford Station. Yep. So, yeah, that kind of undoes all the... It, um, it does undo that, um, that, that season one vibe, mm. in which case Down the Mind would need to take place after at least Donald Douglas, maybe Oliver, yes. um, arrived, and in which case Tenders and Turntables would need to take place sometime earlier before it but you know it's mm. it's fine it's fine it's fine and it's, <laughs> it's also worth mentioning that the gordon the big engine was book number eight in the series and that was when there were only seven steam engines on the fat controllers railway so we've gone backwards from the events of thomas and the special letter we we, we really have yeah it, it's it's oh, a but, weird but... enigma of a story <laughs> Uh, we should also mention, though, both this story, Paint Pots and Queens and Thomas and the Special Letter, they were commissioned and produced to, in a way, commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Railway series. Because, as we know, the books were first published in 1945, and these particular episodes aired on television in 1995. Yes, um, with the Special Letter, 23rd September 1995, and uh, Paints, Quots and Paints, Pots and Queens, 15th of November, 1995. For the UK, uh, in the US, however, that was 18th December, 1995, under the title Thomas Meets the Queen. Oh, well, he technically doesn't really... Well, he's not the only one who meets the Queen because all the other engines get to meet, meet but, her but, too. Yeah. Uh, yep. Mm. <laughs> um, but there are some things that I really enjoy about this. Lighting is brilliant in all counts. You get a wonderful view of the side of Knapford, which we rarely have ever seen. Yeah. Very true. And Knapford Station, it must be said, looks better than ever. I don't think it has ever looked better. With all its bunting. Yes. There are tons of little details all throughout it, such as at the start when Gordon and Thomas are puffing buffer and buffer. Uh, you've got Gordon, you know, with the winch attached that he rescued Thomas with. When the Queen arrives, you have got the uh, Saint Cross uh, next to Gordon, along with all the workers lining up in a uh, procession. And Gordon has received some very special white buffers for this arrival. He has, mm, and he's got the. Uh... The royal coat of arms on either side of him, which I always thought looked really weird when I was watching the episode as a child. I thought, what, why has he got that there? Is that so he can look like a pompous British aristocrat or something like that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. It looks a little weird. I, I feel the coat of arms um, there, the issue is that they seem a little too detailed and intricate to be next to Gordon that way. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but then, as Gordon arrives, you have got some of the best music in the entire show, um, which is actually known as Zadok the Priest, uh, which also played during the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. 
And yes, it's considered one of the regal themes of the United Kingdom. Now, if you haven't heard it before, it's an oft-heard piece of music. So you might not have heard of it, but if you actually hear the music, you'll say to yourself, oh, that's what it is. So yeah, it'll come to you. And as well as that, we also get to hear a rendition of God Save the Queen. Of course, yes, um, we do. the British national anthem uh, when well, Gordon well, leaves with the Queen. Yeah, well, technically it's not the National Anthem of England, but it is considered the anthem of Her Majesty and the United Kingdom as a whole. Yeah, and that has been wonderfully arranged by Mike O'Donnell and Junior Campbell. Yeah, they're just on top form in this story. Yeah, I know. It is such a special episode, which I feel maybe downplayed in the future. Uh, because the Queen is going to make another appearance in season 24 in the double-length episode Thomas the Royal Engine, and I feel that the second appearance of the Queen may sort of reduce the value of her having appeared at all. I don't Well, I think they'll remember the show's legacy. No, 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 I, 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 I'm not fretting about the show's legacy or the quality of the episode. I, I'm also saying on how, you know, if the Queen appears once, it seems like a special thing. But if she appears twice, then it's more so a question of, you know, oh, okay, is this going to be a running theme now? Or the Queen is in every often? season. <laughs> gives an award to one engine. And this season's well, award goes to Charlie. It is worth mentioning at this point, yes, speaking of Charlie, that Her Majesty is now well into her 90s and it's unlikely that she'll last many more years. So, yeah, very soon we will have um, Prince Charles of Wales take to the throne and whatever name he chooses to be called because he doesn't have to be called Charles. He doesn't have to be King Charles III. He can choose whatever title he pleases. Yeah, that that is a very good point. Bet you didn't expect to hear that fact on Right on Track. <laughs> no, no, here on Right on Track, we are full of crazy facts. It's all kind of learning here today. A, a, a pregnant goldfish is called a twit. <laughs> <clears throat> the collective um, noun but... for crows is a murder. Ooh, ooh, I like that, I like that. Uh, a, Hang on, the... isn't this a Thomas the Tank Engine podcast? It I is. Um... <laughs> The, the, the collective noun for bunnies is a fluffle. <laughs> okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> we need to um, get back to the story at hand. Um, yes. <clears throat> paint pots and queens. It, it, I actually like it a lot more than Thomas and the Special Letter. I really I appreciate it. Um, I think I've said all that I can about this episode. You know, um, any additional thoughts, Denim or Connor? Um, I, I reckon a lot of people in... I guess the fandom fresh over why the introduction is there when it explains the accidents that Gordon and Thomas have had. I reckon these are past accidents and the place they are coming from is merely a very similar occurrence rather than the same accident that we saw in season one. Well, it could well be, but we also see that Gordon's got the same... um... Winch. The winch, thank you, that he was uh, using to pull out Thomas from the mines. So, Which you also had in um, Percy Runs Away. That's true. Yeah. He did have it there as well. So, yeah, maybe it's possible that Gordon was attending to another accident and just happened to see Thomas on the way home and just said, you know what, let's just let's just go home together, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah you know. I, 
unite we stand, together we fall, you help me, I'll help you, it's all good. Um, but, like, one detail I've got about this episode, apart from how amazing it is, it has also got one of the funniest scenes in the entire series so far. And that is when Henry is waiting at Knapford Station and there is a painter nearby painting the station as it rains, which I'm not going to question, (laughs) when some smoke uh, from Henry uh, steam blasts high in the air, uh, blinds the painter, and he falls down onto the tarp uh, that the fire and drivemen of Henry put over the cab to protect themselves from the rain. And his uh, paint bucket fell all over Henry. Um, and as he falls, you can hear this very distant... Yeah. <laughs> which is so unintentionally funny. Yeah, but, it is. but like the Queen's um, appearance at Landrindodwells, in 1952, this is based on a true event where a painter at Preston was blinded by an engine smoke, fell on its tarp roof, and paint splashed on the engine. I did not know. See, you learn so many fun things here on the Right on Track podcast. You do. You do Such indeed. as a pregnant goldfish is called a twit. And a murder okay, of crows. Move... <laughs> okay, let's move away from I think it's time to come to the scores. So okay. I'll start us off. I'm giving this one an 8 out of 10. I'm... I really like this episode. I feel it... I I enjoy it a lot more over Thompson the Special Letter. It has got a brilliant lighting, brilliant dialogue. I'm going to give it a 10. I can't fault it. It is a good story. I really like it. But funny, um, I'm in the minority here where I prefer Thompson and the Special Letter over Pots and Queens. Not saying that this is a bad episode at all. I think there's a lot to really enjoy about it. And I love seeing Henry particularly in not the greatest light. He's always Mm. the threatened kind of engine, whereas he's more the threatening kind of engine here, uh, which is a very rare character trait uh, to really see in the uh, dorky green engine that we know and love. Mm, It is kind of out of character, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that they tap into this uh, characteristic of Henry, which is very uh, much into his persona in the Railway series, especially uh, the chemistry between James and Gordon, and it's uh, not often that you see it in the TV series like we do here, and I wish we got more of it. Mm, mm, It's very... Railway series, very season one, Henry. Him being arrogant, not wanting to get his paint wet, and not liking uh, the rain. Which, I guess this episode is almost a reversal of that. Mm. And he's not wanting to get his paint wet, so he stays out of the rain. But in this episode, he's out in the rain, and then his paint is painted. Yeah, for that reason, um, as I said, there's a lot to enjoy. Um, Henry's in top form, all the other engines in top form. It's a great episode, but not as great as um, the special letter, so I'm going to give it an 8. Okay, so even though you enjoy it less than the special letter, you're still giving it the same score that I'm giving it. Correct. Okay. Correct. It's a great episode, but I enjoy the special letter just a smidgen more. But... Now we are going to move on to our musical interlude before we have our interview with our very special guest. 
Parry, what is the interlude going to be today? Well, the interlude Conroe is one I've chosen. I'm particularly proud of the fact I've chosen it. It (laughs) is from Bass T-Bone Music, and it is a remix of Free and Easy, which is a song heard in Big World, Big Adventures, but it's rearranged in the style of a season two composition. So please enjoy Bass T-Bone Music's rendition of Free and Easy. Here's the song. This is the Right on Track podcast. done in the style of the Series 2 soundtrack by Bass T-Bone Music, otherwise known as Michael. Uh, excellent there. Enjoyed it greatly. And you are indeed listening to the Right on Track podcast. This is a very special interview because it's going to be with none other than Robert Gould Golliers, who was part of the show from the very beginning in season one right up until season seven. Rob held the title of art director, so he was very important in crafting the look of the show and uh, was integral to the development of the show. He worked very closely with Britt Allcroft, the producer, and David Mitten, the director, to enhance the 
visuals of Thomas the Tank Engine and friends. And we are lucky enough to sit down and chat with him right now here on the podcast. Rob Gold-Golliers, welcome to Right on Track. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you on this podcast. And also, we must say congratulations because you are the first person from the crew of Thomas and Friends that we've interviewed so far. So, yeah, double congratulations to you. Oh, cheers. Thanks very much. <laughs> Rob, you've, um, you did an interview with Sodor Island Forums a few years ago talking about how you came to be involved with the show and how you um, were working with David Mitten at the time. The question I wanted to ask you first up was, how was it that you came to meet David Mitten, the show's director, and work with him via the Clearwater Film Company? Oh, well, it's a long story. It started with me being commissioned to complete five illustrations for a science fiction movie uh, presentation. And David Mitten saw the presentation. You know, it was in uh, the illustrations in a package with the script and, you know, the budget and all that. And uh, he quite liked the illustrations. And um, he was given my contact number and called me and offered me work at uh, Clearwater Film Company. And and that was in 1979. And Clearwater was specialising in animated TV commercials at the time. And uh, my position was storyboard artist, scenic and character development. So, yeah, I jumped on it. And, of course, as things progressed, when, when I wasn't doing artwork, I, was, I found myself dusting off back shots, uh, you know, the Sykes for back shots. And, you know, you're familiar with Sykes, they're uh, like, their backings basically uh i was roasting under lamps and and i was offered a, a contract in bavaria and i jumped on it and uh i went away for for a year and when i came back uh dave minton contacted me and gave me the position of art director so uh i jumped on that <laughs> and uh so that was my second meeting meeting with uh david mitten and it was about a year and a half later, Britt Allcroft uh, contacted Clearwater to do a pilot episode of Thomas Tank Engine. And um, yes, yeah, so naturally I was in the firing line being the tame art director and uh, that's that's how it all started, really. And from your humble beginning there, you really have gone a far way creating many like amazing designs to the characters and the sceneries you mentioned in your interview with the Sodor Island Forums SIF that the Scarlowy railway sets from season four were your favorite and as it so happens for us here on the podcast Perry Denham and I they are yeah. our favorite sets as well um yeah are there any particular challenges you faced when crafting the different sets especially in the smaller narrow-gauge scale? No, uh, the only challenge was because uh, because it was narrow-gauge, uh, the engines uh, were a bit temperamental. Uh, I would say that was the only challenge, and it was a technical challenge, but I, I just loved the... Uh, I absolutely adored doing the mountain settings. You know, my, my mother's from Castle Island in Kerry, and my father's Scottish, so naturally I love mountain scenery. You know, the, the narrow-gauge engines, the stations, the settings have so much character. I just uh, loved it, really. Yeah, so no real challenge, really, uh, apart from sculpting great rock faces out of polystyrene. Wow, so they're all actually 
crafted out of polystyrene. Yeah, yeah, the uh, the rock faces. Uh, the rest were was all make believe, really. You know, using flats. You know, uh, when I say flats, they they're they're sort of big cutouts, if you like. They're rolled in front of the backing with mountains. Uh, so they're lit uh, as the backing, if that makes sense. And uh, yeah, the rest is sort of all illusion. And um, yeah, I just loved it. Yeah, yeah. And the stations were were so uh, they had to all be different. You know, some were gothic, others were um, sort of castellated. You know, but you could never have one station that looked like the other because it would be confusing. Mm. You know, if you ran out of one station to another and they look similar, so that'd be uh, all had to contrast quite a lot. So, and that was lovely, you know, the the gothic look and then the traditional Victorian and uh, then the castellated sort of typical um, folly type stations, you know. So, yeah, but that was it really. Awesome. Rob, you did mention there that the smaller engines were temperamental when compared to like the bigger, I guess, mainline Sodor engines. <laughs> I'm curious to know in what, way were the smaller engines more difficult to operate uh it well it was a narrow gauge that and and the uh the steaming mechanism was uh was on a smaller scale so everything was on a smaller scale and uh when you know you you must remember that we were building sometimes three sets a day and Mm -hmm. uh you know when you're laying that track down you know, as a model railway fan, you know, if, you, if you're pulling track up and putting it back down, uh, the couplings have to be just right. The power has to be set, you know. Uh, so on a, on a smaller gauge, uh, it amplified the problem. And, uh, yeah, so uh, and the engines having the mechanism scaled down, uh, the titanium tetrachloride smoke, uh, bellows are smaller, so uh, you know it just it just uh, it just added to the problem of um, reliability. But that's another yeah. story. <laughs> Very much so. Um, I think extending on just adding this one in, but I think extending on some of our favourite. Um, I think one of those things for me is definitely um, the skies um, and the massive backdrops that you've done for so many of. How did that, I guess, uh, come about into the creation of, I guess, the Thomas World and the Island of Soda? And what was your part in that? What the backings, the uh, uh, yeah, the, the big the, the skies the sights, and yeah. Uh, being a scenic artist, I thought, oh, why don't I do it? You know, rather <laughs> than tell someone what I wanted. And um, so, uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, I just enjoyed doing it. So I got the uh, the Sykes were made. I had gallons and gallons of emulsion paint delivered. The, the backings would be rolled in a base colour and then they'd spray in the graduation from the deep blue at the bottom. I mean, I don't know how high these things were, something like 30, 35 foot high. Wow. Um, yeah, as long as, a, gosh, how the length of them, because they, they were wrapped all the way around, you see, so... Yeah, fair old length. And uh, so I would, uh, with an airless compressor and gun, and that's a dustbin full of emulsion, undiluted. And uh, you'd put the airless uh, hose in and literally throw the paint 
Yeah, it was quite it was quite something. And uh, and I would graduate from deep blue through to the base colour, which was a sort of a lightish sky blue, down to turquoise at the bottom near the the horizon, and then to white, and then puff the clouds in. Which the uh, clouds are beautiful. Oh, she is, yeah. And of course, you couldn't put any individual character in, into a cloud because if you then rolled in the next rostrum and set up, you couldn't have a cloud that, for con- continuity, looked like the cloud you'd just seen in another scene. Mm. Yeah, so they had to be pretty neutral. So um, that's the backings, really. Okay, and cool. the small ones, of course. The uh, then you would have the uh, the mid distance, which was they were cutouts on stands, and they would be into you know they would be swapped around and moved into position and changed, and and then uh, the sea when you have the run through shots where you see the sea in the background, that was Roscoe Cinegel, which uh, is a rippled. Um, what do you call it? like a foil paper and if if you hit it with a lamp you get this twinkling huh. like a like a distancy yeah stick a fan on it you know now expanding upon um a lot of the sets uh did you base any sets solely on illustrations from the reverend audrey's books in the railway series or did you draw a lot of inspiration from real life locations well, the stations had to be, you know, Knapford Station had to be as it is in the book and Tidmouth and so on. But their illustrations within the station. So uh, because we had a roving camera, um, you know, uh, an inverted periscope, uh, we'd have to make the whole station with lift out panels for the, the glazed roof and so on. So you would take certain features and then make them into a complete structure Um, so we tried to follow the books as closely as possible even down to the skies you know when you look at the fluffy fair weather cumulus you know that's that's what we were we're trying to make the imagery as close to the books as possible and i think we sort of succeeded in the way but of course it was all three dimension Mm. and uh basically it was it was going further than just designing an illustration. You, you know, you were making a real world, if you like, on a rostrum. That's very poetic, the way you put it there. <laughs> oh, cheers. <laughs> Not known for my poetry, but uh, thank you. <laughs> um, now, Rob, earlier in this uh, episode of the podcast, we reviewed the stories Thomas and the Special Letter and Paint Pots and Queens, I'm wanting to know, do you recall working on those episodes at all? No, not really. I mean, when, when you think about it, we were, we were really hammering through episodes. I mean, we, we would, although an episode wasn't completed as a complete unit, it, we would aim to shoot an episode a week. But of course, it's a bit like a jigsaw. You're making elements of a an episode so you're shooting say napford station would appear in episode one then four then five then ten in a series so you would assemble a set and then shoot everything on that set uh for all the episodes if you see what i mean if there was a run through Mm. 
we would shoot, say, that would be for episode 5 or 13 or whatever. So it was all patched up like that and then edited together. The aim was to complete an episode, in theory, a week, which we did. So it was all very quick. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. But what really amazes me about that and the whole runtime thing is because you would have a week to sort of shoot an entire episode, like how much warning would you get in advance of a certain set needing to be made for an episode? Oh, now, the the, um, the scripts and the sets needed were were worked out, obviously, in pre-production. Mm. So, uh, you, uh, as I was trying to say, you, you didn't actually shoot a complete episode in a week, but in theory, when you got to the end of your 26 weeks of shooting, that's not preparation or that's not... Uh, pre or post the target was to finish an episode a week but of course it was done in in uh, uh, fragments as mm. i said you know you'd be you'd assemble a set and you would do every episode that involved that set you would shoot that sequence an episode wasn't shot as a complete episode it would be made up in 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 segments and then edited together later yeah okay yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And like, I mean, you, you stayed true to that schedule because um, just about every season of Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends has had 26 episodes. So if you're aiming at an episode a week and you had roughly 26 weeks ignoring pre and post-production, you really actually kept to that schedule roughly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. It was, uh, you know, sometimes we'd run a week uh, on from you know i mean because of technical problems you you had technical yep. problems with a gantry periscope the camera you know so there was a lot of a, a lot of elements that that could play up you know that that was all going on so that most probably run you into an extra week and of course they're all done in the heat of the summer which was a yes which, which, <laughs> torture yes. under the lights <laughs> 10k lamps yeah <laughs> i think you get it bad in australia <laughs> we, we, we bear it yeah so there you go um a question i have for you rob um do you have a favorite i guess it's a very um uh romanticized question but do you have a favorite memory from working on the tv series at any point a favorite memory gosh uh there were a lot of practical jokes played um, really oh yeah yeah <sighs> There were accidents where um, I remember Gordon, it was either Gordon or Henry, went off the end of the track, off the rostrum, and fell three foot to the floor. I mean, those were oh. they, they, yeah, straight into the repair shop. Yep. Um, but yeah, there were so many. I mean, they, you know, uh, it was full of practical jokers in there, including David Mitten. But I, I suppose one, one, one memory that does spring to mind was uh, we were rigging up, I think it was Thomas towing coal trucks and uh we put some fuse wire through one of the trucks and put some black powder gunpowder in and then filled it with coal and there was a chap called i think his name was jamie bowering the young lad would run the engines uh before the director walked on the floor to see make sure the rolling stock was was running there was no problems everything was functioning well you know and jamie didn't have a clue as the you know the jolly jay so he t- as he turned up to the power 
to get the engine rolling, the uh, coal truck exploded. Oh, <laughs> and, wow. Uh, yeah, and uh, about five minutes later, being, a, you know, his uh, background was special effects. So five minutes later, he walks onto the stage, just sniffing like a dog and says... I can smell black powder. <laughs> so um, brilliant! Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, there are there are so many. Uh, it's, you could write a book on the Jolly Jays. Um, and, and I, I've got um uh, another romanticized question here, which is: Is there a Thomas episode that particularly sits with you as one of your favourite, either one you enjoyed making or watching? Well. Yeah, there is, and uh, I guess that has to be Flying Kipper uh, the, from the first series. And it was, uh, you know, you must remember that we were shooting that in a in a studio at uh, Clearwater that was no bigger than Squash Court, and uh, it was minute. Everything was scaled down, and uh, we had very little space on the studio floor, uh, so it was all, I don't know, illusion, and... Yeah. Uh, there was on Flying Kipper, you know that that episode Flying Kipper with yes. Henry pulling the yeah. Oh, we love it. It's one of our favorites. Um, <laughs> right. I, 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 I'm not so sure if you know this, but that episode has become one of the well-known favorites amongst the entire collective Thomas community. Oh well, wow. oh that's interesting. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, please continue. Yeah. Well, um, I had to design a set that was complete illusion because we just didn't have the space so uh, you know the dock setting uh, yes. where you have that uh, big old freighter ship in the background and then the shimmering water and then you have uh, Henry and the rolling stock on the dock um, that I I would say was no deeper than about 10 foot wow. do you do metric or, oh, uh, wow. uh, or, or imperial measures there? <laughs> about <laughs> Three so metres. We metric in Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, three <laughs> metres. We use metric, but on on the note on you know you were help make it. So then you you know you you used imperial, and then like we we go internationally, so we use metric or imperial depending on oh, okay. what works. Yeah, for the young, it's about three metres. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that in depth, you know, and um, so. Uh, I use silver textured cine gel, you know, like RC material, mm. stretched at 45 degrees in a downslope with a fan beneath, you know, a, a, the lamps placed correctly to catch the, uh, the glints of, of uh, reflected light and to make it look like water movement. And I was playing with perspective and taking a risk at that time, you know, because I thought, well, it should work, but there was no guarantee. And it did work. You know, from there, it earned me the trust to do what I wanted with forced perspective and, and do what I liked with sets, which was good, seeing it was the first series and one of the early yeah. episodes. And, uh, yeah, so I was given free reign after that because it was like, ooh, I mean, that worked then. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I, I, I have got a, a slightly more expanded question because we, we've mainly touched on the show from series one to four in our questions so far and, and that's mostly because on how that is how much we've discussed in the podcast so far um, sure. but 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 you were on the show for roughly 180 different episodes that you worked on 
Oh gosh, was that much? Yes, yeah. yes, and, yeah. and that and that's not including the the uh, spin-off Jack and the Pack and so on. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, tugs. Yeah, yeah, tugs. I'm tugs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my one real question is, if you could have added anything to the world, like a location or character, what kind of thing would you add? This isn't. This is delving into creative side here. What kind of view would you like to have or uh, design of a vehicle would you like to exist in this world that you were a part of? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, my passion is aeroplanes, I suppose. So, yeah, it would have been an aeroplane. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know, really. I, I think we did everything, didn't we? I mean, it was there was all sorts of landscape, um not an easy one to answer that. You did, of course, Rob, uh, place a tiger moth in season five, and that's become a bit of a fan mm. favourite vehicle. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. There, there mm. was... I owned an aeroplane at the time, and it was actually Newport 17, and a First World War Scout, uh, a replica. And although it was called a tiger moth, it's actually a Newport 17. As you look at the tiger moth, it's nothing oh. like a tiger I think David Mitten called it a tiger moth, but... It wasn't, I, I, you know, it had a lot more aesthetically pleasing looks than a tiger moth. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that was actually, if you look up Newport 17, yeah. uh, a French-built scout from the First World War, you'll see uh, similarity. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm looking at an image right now, uh, first introduced March 1916. That's it, yeah, yeah. That's- and you'll Brilliant. you'll see that it's a it's a characterized Newport seventeen. Yeah, definitely because of course you've got the very colourful uh, livery on it. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, Parry Denham, have you got any more questions? Um, one final question I would love to add is um I don't know why it's come to me um any earlier, but it's uh, hit me now. Um, one of the uh, I guess the most prolific things um in Thomas is the windmill that we see in the uh, opening credits. Um, and I believe that you're responsible uh, for designing this windmill and it's become such a staple in the show's uh, history um, up until today. Um, where did inspiration come for this? Well, do you know, we're, uh, <laughs> it was countryside run-throughs and uh, all the time you've got to think of something different, you know, like... Mm something that is typical of a British uh, countryside. And the windmill, of course, features. So just the water mill, you know, the water mill in that uh, that scene with the bridge. Yep. Uh, yeah. And uh, you could have many years, or like, you know, standing stones. But for children, that's a bit sort of deep, you know, you know, Neolithic standing stones. So you've got to go with the... Uh, mm. With the sort of things that children see in everyday life if they're traveling around the countryside. And uh, so the windmill was a great part of a run-through. Initially, it had no story around it. It was just part of a countryside run-through. Yeah, it's funny because, um, you know, when Sony Creative came along, uh, being Japanese, the first question was, what is this thing? And uh, <laughs> and uh, oh, it's a windmill. Yes, but what does it do? Oh, well, you grind flour with it. And 
uh, yeah, they were enthralled and, and they love the idea of this uh, windmill. I think they've got one in uh, Fujikayu, haven't they? The uh, Thomas Land. And that was something else. I, I designed Fujikayu near yes. uh, uh, Mount Fuji. Uh, yes. Their um, Thomas Land there, which is good fun. I just found the drawings recently. Yeah. yeah. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, I've got all the set drawings, you know. I think mm-hmm. we're. Uh, yeah. Do you know what would make a nice thing? A coffee table book with all the set drawings in. Well, I don't, don't you think? Do you think that would? I'm a fan. Yeah, absolutely. Table We're going to take credit for that idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but but like I mean, I would absolutely love it if you went and got them scanned somewhere, a whole bunch of your drawings, and then I don't know, put them up online, or maybe actually make a coffee tabled set drawing book or something. Because I would love to see tons of those things. Yeah, I think many people would buy them. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Hey, Actually, yeah, just anecdotally, there are a lot of uh, TV shows like Adventure Time and Archer, among others, which have put out um, art books. And, yeah, they've sold like gangbusters. So, yeah, I might, I think you might be sitting on a gold mine there, Rob. Yeah. Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> Get in contact with us if you need uh, any help promoting your latest <laughs> endeavour. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen about that. Yeah, while we're here in uh, this covid 19 business yeah, I'll, yeah. I, I'm, I'm starting to uh, clear things out and have a, a shuffle around in old boxes in the attic and coming up with a hell of a lot of uh, material thomas material please do keep your hands on them <laughs> yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah they won't go in the bin <laughs> now uh rob uh, we've taken up enough of your time already but there is one final question that i would like to put to you does it amaze you how many adult fans of Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends you see? Because both Denim and Connor and I have been having discussions with people and they've been amazed that there are so many people who have taken their love of Thomas through their childhood years, right through until their adulthood. Yeah. And yet we speak with fans of the show and they just see it as second nature to them, like it's something that they will cherish forever and ever so yeah have you noticed that the adult fandom and well i you know what are your thoughts on that i have and at times i found it a little bit disturbing because i <laughs> i've i always imagine the audience as being little little ones yeah. and mm. uh and, and of course when you get some big guy who looks like he's just come out of the sas with a big full-grown beard say, saying uh Oh, I love Thomas. I'm a great fan. I, I, it sort of shocks me because I, I still imagine in my mind's eye uh, the audience being children. And um, mind you, I'm getting over that now because. Uh, <laughs> but the, the lovely thing about Thomas was it was passive, and mm. uh, and I think that's why a lot of children and grown ups who who went through their childhood watching thomas it was it wasn't hysterical or mad it was a passive there were passive stories and you know if you do something wrong if you're cheeky in the second episode you get your your comeuppance you know there was so there were lessons to be taught and i think it was uh the the ingredients were perfect yeah so the reverend was spot on there yeah absolutely he was Rob, we thank you uh, so much uh, for your time and uh, for jumping on the podcast with us. It's been fantastic hearing about uh, the history of uh, the show of Thomas and hearing about your experience as well. 
Oh, it's been a pleasure. Been a pleasure. Great talking to you guys. All this technology is uh, pretty impressive, isn't it? Seeing as you're on the other side of the world. It is. Yes. <laughs> yes. And hey, we would love to have you on board another day if you're open to it. It has been fantastic talking to you, learning all about the show from a primary source. Oh, and you guys stay safe. Yes. We'll do. Yes. Uh, yeah, we'll, thank we'll, you. Soon, we'll soon be out of this episode. But that's another story. And that was our interview with the wonderful and ever so charming Rob Gould Galliers, who was, of course, the art director from seasons one through to seven of. Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends. And that also brings episode 31 of Right on Track to an end. Today, as well as interviewing Rob, we've also had a peek at the 100th episode of Thomas and Friends, that being Thomas and the Special Letter, and the 101st episode, Paint Pots and Queens. And, you know, this has been a blast. It, it, it has. has, yeah, really has. It's been wonderful talking about these episodes, but uh, hearing about um, this is Thomas history uh, with Bob, it's like discovering buried treasure for the first time. It really is. I want to know more about the pranks backstage. We've only heard the tip of the iceberg of some, but you could imagine all kinds of things that would have ensued behind the scene. <laughs> Absolutely, and I'm hanging out for that coffee table book as well. Definitely. It'll go Mm. nicely in my collection. But until then, we are going to be saying goodbye, but next episode will be the end of Season 4, and what will we be covering, Parry? Well, next episode, Connor, we will be covering Fish, Special Attraction, and Mind That Bike. I'm really looking forward to that. And then we've got a guest lined up for Episode 32 as well. We do. We have our class productions joining us, otherwise known as Tim. And Tim is a good friend of mine. Uh, we've worked on the Pumbilly Railway together, gone on many uh, steam rail trips together for many years. Uh, but yes, we're going to have a hoot of a time with him. Well, I'm looking forward to that, certainly. In the meantime, though, you can keep up to date with us via all of our social media pages, including facebook.com forward slash right on track Thomas podcast and on Twitter at on track Thomas or there's our Instagram syn underscore right on track or one word. And of course, you can also send us an email by writing in right on track Thomas at gmail.com. Please keep all of your feedback coming in be it good or bad, we love hearing what you have to say and we might even share it on the show as well. Yeah, definitely. But until that time comes, I'm still Connor. I'm still Parry. I'm still Denim. I'm Robert Galliers. And this has been the Right on Track podcast. Adios, guys. Farewell. Bye-bye. <laughs>